good. Let's pray before we jump into this. Uh, Lord, thanks for your word. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would uh, foster an obedience in us, Lord, to live the life you've called us to. We thank you for your salvation. We thank you for, for new life and forgiveness and hope as we turn and put our faith in you. And Lord, we thank you you're alive and here today in our midst. So Lord, would you speak now? And may my words be your words for your people, we pray. In your name, amen. Amen. So I've been nervous about preaching this sermon. Uh, well, since yesterday. Most of yesterday was a bit, bit of a wash. My wife can tell you that. Most Saturdays are kind of a wash for me, actually. Um, as I struggle with the anxiety of Sunday looming. But uh, anyway, here we are. We've come to the end of our series on the Apostles' Creed. If you're visiting with us, uh, you're hitting the tail end, which is brilliant. We're glad you're here. They're standalone, after all. You don't need to know them all to to get to this one. But we've been doing a series on the creed, this ancient statement of faith of the church we've had for many, many, many years, long before there was the East and West split between Roman Catholic and Orthodox, long before the Reformation. And so many, 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 many churches can come back to the creed as sort of the center. Uh, it doesn't replace the Bible at all in any sense. It was never intended to, but it summarizes uh, a lot of the core beliefs of the Christian faith. And here we come at last to the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Most Sundays we've, we've read this or, or said it together at the beginning of the message. I'm going to hold off on that. We're going to say the creed together when we come to the communion table. Um, what we're talking about this morning is what the Bible has to say about oh, the future. The future. In biblical studies we call it eschatology, which sounds very fancy. basically means thinking about the last things, last things. And this is an area where we know some things really, really clearly, and some things less clearly. The Bible is concerned with certain things, and we have lots of questions that we bring to the Bible of all sorts of things in life. Some things the Bible is, wants to answer. Those are the questions that we should be asking. Other times we ask, well, what about this and this? The Bible's like, eh, doesn't, that's not the point. That's okay. So here we are at a topic that can be confusing for people. Um, that can, we can have really deep emotional attachments to some of these things. Um, my hope this morning is that we focus on and find hope in some of the very clear truths that are emphasized in the Word, um, particularly about the resurrection of the body and life everlasting, which is where we're at in the creed. Um, the Bible's really clear about Jesus' personal return. Uh, his historical, personal, visible return, we often say in statements of faith. He's coming to deal with evil, coming to set the world right. We get the resurrection of the dead. We get the new heavens and the new earth, all of these things. So let's just touch on a few of these, especially, though, resurrection of the body and life everlasting. I think it's neat that the creed focuses on those. Now, a lot of us, if you're a Christian here today, you grew up in church, a lot of us potentially summed up the future as something like this. Uh, Jesus came and died to save me from my sin uh, so I can go to heaven. And that's not necessarily wrong or bad. It's okay. Don't need to throw stones at me yet. Um, but notice what's missing in that. 
No resurrection. No resurrection of the body in that idea. The end goal is, is just get off to heaven. And so we're going to bump up this morning as we talk about resurrection. We're going to bump up against one of the biggest misconceptions that we often have about heaven, which is this. And it's okay if this has been you at some point in your life. Um, but we're going to bump up against it here as we talk about bodily resurrection. The misconception about heaven is this, that the purpose we have in this life is to get away, get away from the earth because it's something bad, and we're going to escape and go to this place somewhere out there, out there, uh, in order to get away from our bodies and get away from the material world, and we'll finally be home. And the problem with that idea is uh, it's just actually not biblical enough. It ignores, well, it ignores everything about bodily resurrection. It ignores Jesus' resurrection and what Paul says that means as first fruits for us. But it ignores that God has actually made the created world and he's made our bodies and he calls them good. And he's made them with an eternal purpose. And so today we're going to dive into these passages and I hope I don't ruffle too many feathers. Um, but my hope, as I said, is let's pay attention to what God, through his word, actually wants to say about some of these things. And let's get hope, hope for us, for what that means for our future. So the first thing, let's look about resurrection as it's tied to Jesus, bodily resurrection as it's connected to Jesus. And I want us to turn back to John 11 and this passage, uh, this exchange between Jesus and Martha on the death of Lazarus. And I've got a few points to make here. And my hope here is, again, that we discover the great hope in Jesus for our life beyond death and all that, that means for us. We're not going to cover every issue in eschatology. We're not going to talk at all about timing. Um, I mentioned a few weeks ago, someday, eh, not someday, probably. Next year, probably going to do a series on Revelation. You can hold all your timing questions till then. And if the Lord returns in the meantime, guess what? It's all good. Off the hook, I don't have to worry about it. In the words of John at the end of Revelation, come, Lord Jesus, come. So that Nicholas doesn't have to worry about it. No, I'm kidding. It's all good. John 11, 17, 27. This is Jesus and Lazarus. This is the famous I'm the resurrection and the life statement. So Jesus gets word that his friend Lazarus has taken ill um, and then a really startling and kind of disturbing thing happens. Rather than getting up immediately to travel to heal Lazarus while he's sick, Jesus lets him die, <laughs> which is a bit of a downer, especially for Mary and Martha, right? He waits two days to go to Bethany. He actually does just let his friend die. And then in verse 14, is it 14? Yeah, 14, up a little bit. He says to them, Lazarus has died. For your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. Let's go to him. So he's alluding to the fact that this whole scenario, Lazarus dying, him waiting, them going now while everyone's grieving, this whole thing is actually going to somehow, beyond ways we can imagine, ways we can kind of contrive, God's going to bring about his glory in the midst of this whole broken, messy situation. And it's actually going to stir the disciples, as well as others, to a deeper faith in God. Now this, we're not talking about resurrection quite yet, but let's just stop there for a moment. How many of you have had a time in your life where you expected God to act a certain way, and then he didn't? Like, Jesus, what were you doing, right? 
how encouraging that this story gets left in the Bible for exactly that kind of moment, right? Here's Mary and Martha. They would have been praying for, their, for Lazarus. They sent word. Like, that's not easy for them, right? You got to get somebody with a message to go find Jesus. How do you know where he is? I don't know. Like, you, you know, get the message to him. Like, they're doing all they can to get Lazarus better, get Jesus to show up. By sending for Jesus, clearly they have faith that he can come and heal him, right? So it's not a question of faith or anything like that. So they're doing all they can. They want Lazarus to be well. And Jesus doesn't show up in the way they hope he will. Man, how often is that the case, right? Lord, if you had been here, says Martha, my brother wouldn't have died. And wow, I think almost any of us can fill in the blank to that. Lord, if you had been here, blank wouldn't have happened, right? Totally, totally do. It would have felt like unanswered prayer. It would have felt like just the sense of loss. God, where are you? Where was Jesus? Like all this stuff with Jesus we've been learning and doing, and he just doesn't show up. And the truth is, man, like from the outside looking in, we're like, yeah, but it pans out okay. But imagine being Mary and Martha. This is not fun. This is really bad. This is being in the palliative care room in the moment of your friend dying. That's where they're at, right? Where was was God when I wanted this person healed and they didn't get healed? That's what this passage is about. The thing is, Jesus does show up, right? So that Jesus comes, he does answer, And what Jesus will do is actually different from what they expected, from what we expect. And I think of this story every time we're caring for a loved one. We're reminded that life has tragedy and sorrow, right? Being a Christian doesn't mean you won't experience hardship. And nowhere in the Bible is that kind of presumed, that now I'm a Christian and everything's good. Like, sorry, that's just not not what you've been given here. We're reminded, even in the midst of the tragedy and sorrow, Jesus is still at work in ways we may not yet understand. And while our hope is often for that immediate healing, God is still faithful and good, even to rescue and to heal beyond death, which is exactly what bodily resurrection is all about. So Jesus does come. Martha goes to meet him. Verse 21, she says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then this great line, which shows the movement from grief but also to hope. Even now I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Brilliant. So she's upset about what's happened, but she's still looking to God. She's still in dialogue with Jesus about the grief. And that's really key because so often when we face death, we, can, we don't take that step. Um, And, of course, it's very, very difficult when we're facing death. But she's upset, but still she hasn't turned, turned away from talking with God about her feelings about this, right? Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And this is very kind of not run of the mill answer, but this is what most first century Jews would have believed, that at some point in the future... God will deal with Rome. Israel will come out from under, being kind of subjugated. Several things will happen. Uh, Rome will get dealt with. A Davidic king will be enthroned. 
the nations will come in and to bless Israel, um, and there'll be a resurrection. There'll be a resurrection of everybody. Everybody's coming up. Woo! It's going to be really great. No one person getting resurrected kind of thing. So Martha thinks, yeah, Jesus, that's really nice. It, yeah, like I know he'll be okay when it's all said and done, you know, at the end. And then Jesus does something really remarkable. He says, but I am the resurrection and the life. And he doesn't just say he'll bring the resurrection. I mean, he is saying that, but he's not just saying that. Only Yahweh can bring about this resurrection. So he's making a statement about how he's God by saying that. He's not just saying he'll bring it about. He's not just saying he'll be the cause of the resurrection, which is also true, but he says something much, much stronger, that he is the resurrection and the life. And the point is this, that resurrection from the dead and eternal fellowship with God, resurrection of the body and life everlasting, those two things the creed talks about right at the end, they are so closely tied to Jesus. They are so, so embodied in him they can only be found and experienced as we are in relationship with Jesus. And he goes on to say, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. It's this idea that it's a personal trust in Christ. It's a genuine faith in Jesus that brings people through death and into new life. Those who are in a personal walk with God. Those who know Jesus, that's the promise for us. It's, it's an incredibly kind of suddenly relational moment, right? The resurrection in life that you long for is actually found in me. Come and get to know me. And that promise is for you. And then Jesus goes and he does a very, very beautiful thing where he weeps for his friend, but he also is weeping at the death and destruction of his cosmos, that death is present in his world, which was not intended for. Then he calls Lazarus out of the tomb. And it's like this demonstration that what he said about the future resurrection coming true in him, now he's saying, yeah, for sure, I have the power over death itself. And death in the end will be destroyed. And that call to Lazarus, that summoning him out of the tomb, is like an echo of the call that he'll give on the last day, which we read in 1 Thessalonians there. This miracle in John looks ahead to Jesus' own resurrection. And in Jesus, we get this promise of the future life, God's future life, that future hope that, that the Jews were waiting for of resurrection at some point is now suddenly reaching forward into the present and happening now. And that's why Paul says Jesus' resurrected body is the first fruits of what God will do on the last day. And you remember when we talked about Jesus' the resurrection, we talked about first fruits, kind of this idea of it's kind of the first taste of the harvest. And in the first fruits, it's this agricultural kind of concept in the Bible that you can get a sense of the quality and the, the character of what the whole crop will be when you look at the first fruits of the crop. And so Paul's saying you can get a sense of what our future bodily resurrection will look like when you look at the resurrected Lord. And so even Lazarus's, um, I like to say resuscitation, because Lazarus eventually does die again, by the way, if you, didn't, if you didn't know, right? He's not still, you can't go find Lazarus today, you know. Um, but Jesus' resurrection is of a very different sort, right? This is a new creation body, and uh, it does all sorts of strange things, but also is in continuity with his old body.
So all of that, incredible hope for us about facing death for Martha and Mary and any of us who've been experiencing grief, God at work in those moments, still bringing about his life and his purposes, even though we may not always see that from the inside. And I think again of Martha and Mary, uh, it would have been so much nicer for them had Jesus showed up when they thought he would. Of course, it's wonderful that Lazarus is raised, um, but that doesn't undo the grief of the moment. And folks, a lot of us are carrying grief. A lot of us have experienced struggles as well. Jesus is present with us in the midst of that. And here we look forward to what the future holds. When we look at Jesus' resurrected body, the Gospels point out a few really important things. I mentioned this again in our session on resurrection. Uh, He eats several times. They talk about him eating. And of course, what's the big one? The scars, right? And Thomas says, I want to see the scars. I want to know it's really him. Um, And so there's continuity between Jesus' resurrected body, as in the scars are there. Um, There's also discontinuity because he just shows up kind of at will. Several things happen. You're like, "Uh, what? This is a different sort of body, and yet it is similar. They recognize him sometimes, um, but they know it's him because of the scars. It's not exactly the same. It's also not destroyed and remade either. Do you think about that? It's not like it's disposed to its molecules and then reconstituted, right? It's the same body. The key thing, when Paul talks about first fruits, the thing that's so crucial for us, the thing the creed states, this is a bodily resurrection that we look forward to. Um, Your body matters. Like, God has called it good. You may look in the mirror and think, not so good, you know. But God calls it good, that your physical, your physicality, God says, yep, I like it, right? The whole human idea is that this is a spirit, physical, hybrid being. Put them together, right? And that's what you get in Genesis is God gets his soil mud man together and makes him from the dust of the ground and then breathes his living spirit into the person, right? This is physical and spirit hybrid person running around. How cool are you? You're a hybrid, Brilliant. There you go. Are our bodies broken in all sorts of ways? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you and we all know this. Our bodies do not all function well, but they're not evil. They're good. And we look forward to the day when they will be restored and made new. And I think of this especially, uh, I thought of it the other week when I was in Winnipeg and and saw Randy Levitt, who's the pastor at People's Full Gospel. He's, he's dealing with cancer and all sorts of things going on. And went and saw him in the hospital. And um, he's just sort of a shell of who he was. I mean, he's, he's okay. He's hanging on. We're praying for him. Um, and many of you know this. If you've walked with someone in, in late stages of cancer it's in, in, in treatments, right? He's just, he's shrunken and he's... His face looks really different, and his arms are really different. He's lost so much weight, and he just, it, it's, it's kind of, it's strange, right? Um, I know when I saw my grandpa as he, was, as he was dying, right, they just, he looked so different. I saw my great-grandma when she was dying, just, well, she was over 100, so she already was, like, pretty small and frail. But same kind of thing. It's just, this body is not what it once was, Right? And especially when we see people and they're bedridden and, and, 
and things are just not right, I just think again, someday, someday they will have a body that's free of this cancer and free of whatever other stuff is going on and will be raised to new life in Jesus. And what a day that'll be. And it's the day that Martha's looking forward to here in this passage. At the same day, Jesus says, this will this is the reality that will come to completion in me, new resurrection body. I'm the resurrection and the life, he says. And then he says, if you believe in me, you never really, you never really die. And so as Christians, again, I'm saying it again, because of the resurrection of Jesus, we can look to the resurrection of our own bodies. And I love how Jesus is meeting Martha in her grief with real hope, the hope that that we can have a relationship with Jesus, that in him we can have new life. We never truly die, we're alive, which is why even in the creed we talk about the communion of saints. That's exactly where this is coming from. You're never really, you're never truly dead. They're alive, they're in God, right? They're okay. Paul is doing the same sort of encouraging, just as Jesus is encouraging Martha here about the future. Paul's doing the same thing in 1 Thessalonians. So if you turn to 1 Thessalonians 4, and I tell you, I have a terrible time finding Thessalonians. I jump around Ephesians and Timothy. Driving me crazy this morning. I was, where did someone took Thessalonians out of my Bible? Paul's doing the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 4. He's here, he's meeting a struggling church in their grief, and he's teaching them about the hope they have in Jesus for bodily resurrection in the future. So same kind of thing as Jesus is attending to Martha and telling her about resurrection and life eternal. Here now, Paul's talking to this young church. The church had just lost some people in the congregation to death, and now they're grieving, but they're also afraid. These people died before Jesus returned. Like, so what happens to them? Like, are they okay? What do we do? And Paul hadn't had a chance to really get into this with him. He had to leave early. And so here we are in 1 Thessalonians. This is page 987 in the Pew Bibles, verse 13. And he says, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. Again, this is a common biblical metaphor for being dead. It's being asleep. Which, again, kind of points to the idea that you're not, you're not truly dead, right? So he says, don't be uninformed. We don't grieve like those without hope. Which is so, that's such an awesome verse. It means what? It means it's okay to grieve, first of all. Your grief's okay. When you encounter someone who's passing away and dying, and you miss that loved one, your grief is completely justified. It's okay. But as Christians, we have a hope that informs our grieving process. And that hope is that since we believe, verse 14, that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. You think, bring with him where? Huh? Right? Bring with him. And especially if your main thought is we just need to get off to heaven somewhere, then you'll think, I thought we were getting away to God in heaven, but where is he bringing these people to? Well, those who have died who know Jesus are gathered to God upon death. They're in fellowship with God. That's not resurrection. Going to heaven when you die is not resurrection. You can't be fully human without a body, right? The goal of life according to the Bible, is not to go be a disembodied spirit somewhere. So what do we see? Paul says, your deceased Christian friends, they're not going to miss out on the second coming. In fact, guess what? They get to be with Jesus when he shows up. Brilliant. He's coming with his own parade, right? Good to go. Verse 15, 
he says, we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, right? So those people who are alive when Jesus returns, left until the coming of the Lord, we won't precede those who have fallen asleep. Don't worry, they're fine, Paul's saying, right? They'll be with God, all's good. Jesus is bringing these deceased Christians with him, the souls of those who've been in heaven with God up to this point. And then Paul's point here is that all the Christians who have died, who have fallen asleep, they'll be with Christ at the second coming as Christ descends to the earth, and they're present because their bodies at that moment will be resurrected and reunited with their souls, which is really, really good because to be a human is to be hybrid, right? You need your body. There we go. Then he says, brilliant. Then we who are alive, verse 17, who are left, we're caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with him. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Point being, what's the encouragement? Two big hopes. We are reunited with those in Christ who have gone before us. Your loved ones who know Jesus, you will see them again. Right? That's incredibly, that's really good. Love that. Thank you. The other one is you are gathered, is the other hope, you're gathered again into loving communion with Jesus. You get to be with him face to face. Brilliant. Awesome. So good. Now, I want to make a, just a quick note. This might ruffle feathers. I'm so sorry. I've built, I've built up enough trust, haven't I, that I can say something that's potentially... Listen, it's okay. Verse 17, Paul uses this really specific Greek word to meet. He talks about meeting the Lord in the air. Um, you think meet and do what? Well, meet and get back off to heaven, right? Um, what direction is Jesus traveling in verse 16? And the Lord shall descend... Right? This term for meet here, it's the same word you use um, at the arrival of like a royal dignitary that's coming back to the city. And this is the same word, this is, they all would have known this. Paul would have known this, the readers would have known this. It's the same kind of thing when Caesar or some other official is returning home, they're coming. It's like when the queen came. I wasn't here when that happened, but you know. Someone royal is coming, do to do to do What happens? Well, the whole city comes out to meet them, right? It's all very, very exciting. It's the same kind of word that Paul's using here. Um, you head out to welcome your incoming king. Similar to the triumphal entry, right? Jesus is coming on the donkey, do to do to do And the people come out to meet him. They're thro- palm branches, and they're throwing, the, throwing their coats on, and they're all excited, and there's, like, kids on the front step cheering, Right, and there's people up on the balconies, like, throwing flowers. And, like, some guy, the balloon guy, is, like, making a fortune on helium balloons, you know. And, like, it's exciting. It's a big parade. The people are coming out because the person who's coming is worthy of honor and fanfare and celebration, right? We're excited because the person we were waiting for to show up has finally showed up. It's really, really, really good. So the inhabitants of the city would go out to welcome the coming king but they don't stay outside the city. The welcoming crowd that goes to meet the king then comes with the king back into the city. Right? So you go out to meet him. Hooray! It's really good. And then you come back to the city with him. And I would, it seems to me, what direction is Jesus coming in? He's descending. Verse 16. This is the coming of Yahweh, the return of Jesus from heaven to his creation. He's bringing all the dead with him. They're restored to their resurrected bodies, and then those who are alive will go out like the citizens in the city to meet the Lord in the air so we can all return and welcome him home at long last. It seems to me that the direction is we go out to meet him, just like welcoming 
the ruler, back home to the city so that we all return with him. And it seems to me that that's what Paul's talking about in First Thessalonians. Some will argue otherwise, but it fits the first century context, and it fits the grammar, and it fits the biblical story. Um, you can believe in a rapture. That's fine. I don't think you should use this verse. I don't think it's what it's about. But that's just me. What's that mean? Life eternal for the Christian may indeed mean being with God in heaven if you die before he comes. Brilliant, but that's not the end goal. The end comes when Jesus himself personally returns. The returning king, the lamb who is slain for the world, victoriously returns for his creation with all his saints and those who are here with him, bodily resurrected. What does that body look like? I'm not sure. It's modeled somehow on the resurrected body of Jesus. And the dead are back again. J.I. Packer puts it this way. He says, without bodies, we cannot be in relationship. And without relationships, we can have no real meaning. God's plan is to redeem humanity, body and soul. And that's why he says in verse 18, encourage one another with these words. This is incredible hope for us of Christ's return and of bodily resurrection. I want to give the last five minutes of my message over to Rick Watts. Jordan, you can get that video ready. This is an episode from uh, the Reframe Bible series. And Rick, uh, he was my New Testament professor. He's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. We might want to get this light here turned off. Someone at the back can grab, maybe turn off that back light. And uh, Rick's going to talk a little bit about the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, I'll let him take it away here once we get that ready. Because Jesus comes back with a body. He's not a ghost. This is not Casper the friendly Jesus. Right? Now, it's an unusual body because he can appear and disappear at will. But when he eats, it doesn't fall through his sandals. It's a real body. Now, you've got to hear that because this is also God's extraordinary affirmation of the human body. Right? Bodies matter to God. That's why Christians don't actually talk about just saving souls. So the body doesn't matter. We have to have a body in order to reflect God's image. Cannot be human without a body. And the resurrection is God's affirmation of the continuation of this body into the world to come. And of course, if this body is physical, it's going to need a physical place in which to exist. And the resurrection is then also God's affirmation of the goodness of creation. If you like, Jesus' resurrection is our first glimpse of the world to come. And that world to come is going to involve a new heavens and a new earth. Now, this sometimes surprises in some respects, but fortunately, not so much over the last few years as people have begun to realize what their Bibles actually have to say about this. We already learnt from Ian that creation is God's temple. So listen to these texts. For God so loved my soul. For God so loved human beings. For God so loved the cosmos. Creation is the temple. Human beings as his image within it. That he gave his son. Do you get that? God loves his creation. And he's not going to let the first set of snake features that comes along take it over. 
And right, he'll defeat Satan whether by hook or by cross, but he's going to do it. So committed is he to this creation. And so when Jesus teaches us to pray, what do we pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. May your kingdom go and take us with you. Is that what he says? But it's amazing how many Christians actually act as though that is what Jesus says. He doesn't say that. He says what? May your kingdom come. Your will be done where? On earth. Heaven's not the problem. Earth is. And God is committed to restoring it. That his will, his kingdom might be done here. Paul in Romans 8 says something similar. Creation groans waiting for its destruction. No, it's redemption. And that's the language that comes straight out of the account of the Exodus. When God redeems Israel, he doesn't destroy them. He doesn't burn them up and start something new. They're the ones who come through this. When you get to Revelation, what are we told? The saints will reign upon the earth. Of course, we're not made for wings. See? And you can understand why God also in Revelation says he will destroy those who destroy the earth. You and I wouldn't dream of dumping toxic waste in our lounge rooms, but we'll happily do it to God's temple. Stop. No more. And the end of all things, the new Jerusalem does what? Comes from heaven to earth. And there's the great acclamation at the end. Behold. 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 The dwelling of God is with humanity. We are going nowhere. Heaven and God, it seems, are coming here. That is an extraordinary thought. The resurrection then is God's first down payment. It's his guarantee. It's God's commitment to this future. What he's done to Jesus, he will do to us. And through that, creation too will be set free from its bondage to decay. Can you imagine what that's like? Anyone here enjoy coffee? You ain't had nothing yet, baby. <laughs> well, I can hear some of you raising some questions. Though. Well, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. Aren't there a few little problems here? Right? For example, what do we do with this? Revelation 21 says the heaven and earth are going to pass away. First heaven, first earth, gone. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Hang on, hold your horses. Go back and read Paul. What does it say? If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creature. The old has gone and the new has come. You didn't suddenly change. You weren't burned up and suddenly reappeared. No, no, no. It's using this language because this transformation is so remarkable, so astonishing. You can only use this language and even then you don't get close to the edge of it. This extraordinary future that God has envisioned for us his enemies, and for his creation. Well, doesn't Second Peter talk about the heaven and earth being kept for fire? Well, yes, but read the rest of the passage. It's actually the wicked who are burned up, not creation. Well, what about the heavens passing away with a loud noise, the elements melting, the earth being burned up? What about that text? What you're seeing here is a cosmic Mount Sinai. What happened at Mount Sinai? The heavens moved apart, God descended, roaring noise and came face to face with his people that's what's envisioned here the coming of the glory of god to earth it's not a cosmic annihilation it's a cosmic mount sinai as god's presence comes to us so the resurrection god's yes to jesus and because of him to humanity 
and therefore to his creation. It points to the promise of this cosmic shalom, peace, a garden city with plentiful river and trees of healing for the nations. Because Jesus comes back with a body. Thanks, He's Jordan. not a ghost. That's the end of it there. Let me read to us again. Revelation 21, 1 to 3. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. No longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. What a powerful vision of the future. How does this impact our lives today? Three short points before we head to the table. It's all part of God's plan of salvation, folks. Put away our sin and for us to come into newness of life, and he invites all of us to reach out and receive that gift. God's salvation life for us. Jesus says, if you're in me, I'm the resurrection and life. Come to me. And second, this great affirmation that he loves you. God so loves you. He so loves you. And he has a great plan and purpose for you, and he will see that through to completion. He loves you. cares about you. And I think the big theme, of course, is that our matter matters. He loves his world. Our bodies matter. Part of being human, part of bearing his image, as Rick reminds us, in relationship with one another. And so when we think resurrection, it points to God's affirmation of his great love for his world, for us, and that great promise we have of our own resurrection and of a new heaven and new earth. And as we come to this table, those that are going to serve, you guys can come on up. I think of Jesus' words to his disciples in Matthew 26, 29. He says this to them. He says, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so this meal that we share this morning, it looks forward to that great banquet feast that we will share in the world to come. So folks, today may you be filled with hope. God will deal with the sorrows and the brokenness of this world. He will. He's committed to it. He'll make all things new, including you, Including me, I need to be made new also. <laughs> and that newness starts as we come to him even today. I believe in the resurrection of the body and of life everlasting. And I'll invite us as we think, as we head towards the table, why don't we stand and let's say the Apostles' Creed together as we head to this, Jordan. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. 
On the third day, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. From there, he will come to judge living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Would you remain standing with me? I'm just going to pray for us. Lord, we thank you for the hope we have in you. The hope we have even in the moments of life where we encounter death, where we encounter grieving, where we encounter suffering. Lord, those are so real. And not for a moment do you downplay them. They break your heart. And we see that, Lord, as you weep for your friend Lazarus. Lord, we too are a people who weep the brokenness we see around us. But we do not grieve as though we have no hope. And as Paul reminds us, we look forward, Lord, to that day when you will come again to set your world aright. To bring back to life those who have gone before us and to restore and renew all those who are alive when you come again. Lord, we thank you for the hope of our bodily resurrection. Thank you, Lord, for the goodness of your creation. We pray you'd help us to understand what that means for us for today. But most of all, Lord, as we come to this table, we recognize this great truth that you gave your life for us. You gave your life to undo the power of sin and evil so that we can know your salvation. Lord, as we come to this table, may it be an act of reaffirming our own faith recognizing, Lord, you are the source of life. You're the source of our future resurrection. And as we eat, Lord, we look forward to that day when you will come and we will eat with you in that new heaven and that new earth. Lord, we live before that time. So would this meal also be a place of mission, just as we've been fed here? May you send us out from this place with the bread of life, to feed the family and the friends, the strangers, the co-workers around us who are broken and in need of you. Lord, may we live out your gospel. May it be seen in our actions and in our heard in our words, Lord, as we encounter people. May you bring many to faith in you. Through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>